I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Yara Rodriguez-Fowler on her debut novel, Stubborn Archivist. Yara Rodriguez-Fowler grew up in a Brazilian English household in London, where she still lives. Yara is a trustee of Latin American Women's Aid, the only refuge run for and by Latin American women in the UK, and has also given workshops on gender and power to teenage girls with feminist organisation Fearless Futures. Yara's writing has been published in Litro and the UCL Publishers Prize, and she received a special mention in the 2015 Gallybega Press Short Story Competition. And she's the author of the novel Stubborn Archivist, which we're going to be talking about today. Yara, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, thank you. How would you describe this novel? Yeah, oh uh, gosh, I guess I would say like calling it a novel is even a bit of a question mark. Certainly when I was writing it, I wasn't thinking that it was necessarily a novel. I wrote it quite a while ago and it was sort of if I didn't have any kind of connections in publishing or anything like that so I was just writing what I wanted to write and I was thinking I mean I was very familiar with like the British novel and you know the tradition of British novels but what I was sort of thinking of when I was writing was more like The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros and uh, there's a book called The Dew Breaker by Edwidge Donticat um, who's a Haitian American writer Sandra Cisneros is Mexican American so Yeah, I was thinking of these sort of broken up books that aren't short story collections. They're sort of one narrative or one family or one story or one world. They all deal in one world, but they don't, you know, they deal in gaps and silences and poetry. And anyway, so that's what I wanted to write. And then I didn't even know like how many words a book has to be, right? And then I sent it to my agent, the person who, you know, I sent out to agents, signed my agent and um, we bound to publishers and... Yeah, like novels are what are what sell in the UK. So this is a novel, and I guess it is a novel. Um, or every novel sits somewhere on the spectrum of like the form, like either adhering to it in a kind of standard way or in a more I don't know, like deviating from it more. So yeah, I guess that's where I'd start. Like I'm not sure it's exactly a novel. Well, the other way to suggest is it a novel? Is it not? Is the potential of how memoirish I guess it is as well. I mean, the protagonist of this story is a young woman very much like yourself, also from, you know, the, the similar background. Um, you also grew up in South London. Um, so to what extent have you used real life in this? It's not a book about my life. Um, it's definitely fiction. It's, yeah, the frame of reference is 
mine I'm writing what I know in the sense of like I didn't need to do research extensive research like how did young women growing up in South London in the 90s experience public transport you know I mean whatever like I didn't have to research it but it's not it's I, I wouldn't call it a memoir in fact I would say it's definitely not a memoir and it's definitely fiction um, and the other thing also is I think fiction is not just about the relationship that we might perceive a text to hold to reality. Fiction is also a contract between the reader and the and the writer. It's a sort of agreement on the terms in which we're going to read something. And, yeah, I think that's important to me, if that makes sense. That's, like, important to the text. You mentioned the format of the book a little in, in your introduction to it. And I wanted to talk a bit more about that, about how it actually came together, as you've said. It's, it's a sort mm. of cross between prose and poetry and I say poetry in the terms of often just how the text is laid out on the page Mm. the use of space as well within the within the text yeah I think that was sort of very natural to me I think I find it sort of weird and counterintuitive and not how I write to you should aspire always to be writing poetry like you should always be aspiring to write your very best most efficient prose i.e poetry that's how I think of it and um, so it was very clear to me that some of these things I wanted to write about just would be more rubbish if or wrong or just not the thing that I needed to create if I had written in a straight prose and the other thing is that and these things are very connected but you know black the use of blank space is very political and it has a long history and it has a relationship to not just trauma and the way trauma interrupts our ability to remember things and record things and properly represent them or when I say properly I mean in the way that is considered proper right and traditional and believable and objective but also blank space has a really long history in terms of censorship and it's the way it's used in Latin America and literature and um, I was so I was also writing from a tradition that deals with trauma creatively because it has to and those sort of how do you create a counter-narrative as opposed to a being the person who's allowed to say this is what happened. Um, And again, I think that's the tension between the traditions that I write from, so the kind of tradition of the British novel and the kind of more Brazilian oral traditions. So, for example, music that was written during the dictatorship that had to pretend it was a love song, but it's actually about, like, missing your country because you live in exile or whatever. So it was both of these sort of things at once. And I think the other thing is that we, the way we communicate is changing and we do punctuate less when we write to each other I think like the kind of divide between a thought and a dm and something you say out loud and something you whatsapp are these all speech like how should we punctuate them so I think the way that we experience like speech and punctuation and all these things is changing and I think that that's potentially why punctuating like I did and writing like I did came so naturally to me yeah and and the book also I mean it as well as having a main protagonist it also relates the memories of a mm. number of other characters and and the way it's laid out also sort of suggests the sort of the fractured nature of mm. memories and i want to talk about the the title stubborn archivist mm. which uh, the protagonist describes herself as tell me what you mean by that yeah so there's a line in the text where we have one of these pages that doesn't have a huge amount of writing on it and it's actually unclear like who's speaking or not speaking or being addressed And she's thinking about this relationship and um, she says, oh, but there were good times, come on, be honest, be fair or something like that. And then she says, but she's a stubborn archivist. And 
that's in the context of finding it extremely hard to organise her memories about this relationship. So finding it very hard to have a kind of archive of that relationship, I suppose, on her, on terms that she can control. So um, she says, oh, she can't remember any of the good things. And then she lists some good things. And it's about, in that sense, the way that trauma of that relationship that we sort of learn more or less about as the book goes on um, interrupts and intervenes in her memory of what happened, but also her relationship to speech and being able to articulate and say things. And that's why the text is so interrupted. And it also interrupts her relationship to space. So like when she's out, she's always thinking, is he here? Is he here? And every place is an archive of what's happened. So it's, yeah, it's about this thing of like trauma intervening and how do we remember things? Like on whose terms are we remembering? And I think the other thing about the title is that we never get offered proof or a rape scene or a scene where the ex-partner is emotionally abusive. Whenever shown, like this is what happened, it's the protagonist or the narrator or the text withholds from us and there are things that are private and there are things that we're asked to believe. So in that sense, and there are things that she also doesn't translate and that kind of maps out onto for ex- the bilingualism of the book, for example. So it's kind of a, also about saying asserting boundaries and saying like this is being what well, this will be done on my terms and there are things that yeah this text will withhold from you well the use of portuguese untranslated portuguese in the text to a non-portuguese speaker also i think gives us an insight into the book is one of the themes of the book is the idea of growing up between mm-hmm. two cultures so our mm-hmm. protagonist is born and raised in the uk with a Brazilian mother and a British father. And constantly there's this question all the way through the book, which is like, you know, where are you from? Whenever she meets somebody mm. new, it's like, where are you from? In that sort of, but where are you really from? Type mm. type sort of intonation. And I thought I think that use of the Portuguese also gives, as I said, gives a sort of insight into that two cultures thing. So let's talk about this idea of being sort of drawn between two cultures. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing is that the like, where are you from thing is also gendered. It's also a way of... I mean, yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that's from my life. I mean, it happens to so many people, but it's men ask me that. Women hardly ever ask me that. And actually what, what I think they've learned is that you can't say that anymore. So instead you go, oh, what an interesting name. Where's it from? And it's just it's just a way of being like, are you from somewhere sexy? Like, it, that's just all it is. And it, so it's, it is about two cultures, that thing, but it's also about gender and about basically how you don't experience your gender in a vacuum. Like, you experience it, like, in a way that's, racialized and like all of these different things so and vice versa so and also to do with class but yeah I guess that's the the other thing and it's part of the relationship with this other character and the sexual violence all these things are tied up together and I guess going to the like two cultures thing more broadly what we get is also chapters from the perspective of her aunt uh, who's lived in Brazil and then comes to the UK twice in the book and we those are two chapters that we have and then we also have a couple of chapters that are told as stories from her mother so kind of addressed to the protagonist um, and then we also have a chapter that's more focused around the grandmother and has a few like bedtime stories that are quite important um violent bedtime stories they are violent bedtime stories absolutely yeah um and that and again that for me so when one of the bedtime stories it's about how her granddad's granddad like whatever like lived on a farm in a very rural area and they like to go hunting and are told how like big and burly these men are 
and um, one night they catch a jaguar, an ulcer, and then another night they bring back an injo, which means indigenous woman. And so it's, it is about how violence against particularly indigenous women and, of course, black women, like, is completely naturalised into Brazilian, not just Brazilian culture, but Brazil's understanding of itself and where it came from, and that you could somehow get to a place where you think that's an appropriate bedtime story for a child. And in that same chapter, there's a telenovela that they're watching, which, again, is like this romance between two characters, actors who are beautiful and white, which, again, it's very Brazilian to do that, but it's set during the era of slavery on like a sugar plantation so again it's this like site of violence which is very normalized and romanticized in the brazilian imagination yeah and that was important because again sorry this just it gets described a lot as a book about identity but it's a book about also being like how did this identity ever become constructed and i think that's extremely important identity doesn't just stop at describing yourself it also continues into but how did it ever get to a place that my identity means these things. Who is it useful for? And you also talk about, you know, that from the opposite way. So, you, you, as you've already mentioned, you know, there's when the character meets and when you've yourself, you know, met people in the UK who will say, you know, the where you're from thing. But also that almost see the Brazilian before they see you. So, like, oh, I'm interested in there's a character in the book that says, oh, I used to be really into Brazilian porn as a way of, mm. like, you know, trying to, try to, I guess, chat up our protagonist. And, um... Mm. You show this portrayal of, you know, the the British idea of Brazil of in terms of, you know, the, our protagonist works at a, at a television company at one point making documentaries about Brazil. And those mm. are about, you know, beaches and parties and plastic surgery and things like that. Mm. So there's there's this view looking back to Brazil as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think actually that's I mean, that's one of my frustrations with the protagonist. I think she's very passive. She sort of gets sort of quite sort of annoyed at everyone around her, but we don't see her really doing anything. And she's quite she's actually quite a powerful person or she will be if she carries on. But she's a little bit stuck and doesn't do anything. And that's something I find annoying about her. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neo Denny. Today I'm talking to Yara Rodriguez Fowler, and we're talking about her novel Stubborn Archivist. Yara, you've mentioned some of the characters, so let's talk about yeah. some of the characters a bit more. And I guess yeah. we should talk a bit more about the protagonist first of all. Tell us more about who she is. So she's. I guess that what drives the book really is her. There are some chapters of her childhood, and she grows up in South London in like a big house in Tooting, and her parents are doctors. Um, and yeah, she goes to Brazil, which is where her mum's family still is, and that happens every year, and that's sort of part of her childhood. But I would say, like, what drives the book is really her making peace with the experience of an abusive relationship and her body, and like finding joy. We see scenes from her young childhood, mm. um, you know, right up to adulthood as well. Tell us something about her childhood, some of the growing up in South London parts, writing that. Yeah, I loved writing those bits. And it was important for me actually to use the poetry not just to write trauma stuff, um, but to write, like, good stuff. So, yeah, there are all these scenes of, you know, like, underage drinking and, like, like lying to... Lying about your age and your name to get into a club and, like, how fun that is and how, like, going going out is, like, never that fun ever again, really. And that is, like, the kind of adolescence that, that I had. And there's a bit where it talks about Lydia Bennett. And it is that Lydia Bennett thing of being, like, oh, like, I think I am powerful. I think my sexuality does wield some power in this world. But then actually, like, that's quite complex and bad things can still happen. But it's really, really exciting and, like, experimenting with, like, femininity and being an adult and looking like an adult and, like, people being attracted to you and, like, navigating that however imperfectly. And again, that goes back to the Brazilian porn thing. Like, does she... Like, she wants to be sexy and desired, doesn't she? Like, how to negotiate that? And also, like... And I think a lot of women have this, is, like, how long it can take you to actually have a sexuality on your own terms. One that's not projected onto you by the people around you and again that's why like there is like a very quiet queerness in the book as well but again it's that thing of just like if you are bombarded by this hypersexualization, which you're also finding exciting like how can you ever possibly like it's just hard to have a relationship with your body and with your sexuality i thought that bit was that the great section where she travels back to brazil with the college friend yeah um, and they they just, like, she sees again, sees how the, the sort of relationship falls apart because she sees how her friend, she sees Brazil through her eyes, I guess. You yeah. see how she's witnessing it. And suddenly it's all a bit crass and a bit sort of a bit weird. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's like, if you're very used to navigating two very different spaces, you can forget that lots of people actually don't have no idea how to behave. And I don't think that's just uh, one country to another. I think it can be also a class thing. Like, if you suddenly are someone that's, like, never met any working-class people or, like, whatever, like, to be in your space with you. Like, anyone that has code-switching or anything like that in their life, you suddenly that person can be a real disappointment. Let's talk about the parents. So Isadora and Richard, and particularly mm. I want to talk about Isadora in the main. So she's come over to the UK and met an English man. They've got married. Mm. Um, but she also has this background as as an activist in Brazil at the time of the dictators. Tell us something about her. Well, I mean, I'm not saying I'm some kind of oracle or prophet, but I obviously wrote this in 2015-16, and I was redrafting it in 2016. So there was... Dilma was being impeached, and it was clear that there was this 
I guess, disconnect between the way that like different parts of Brazilian society understand their history. And like I've always witnessed that just from the Brazilians that I know. And I think what I wanted to, what I felt it was important to document is that for me, it's quite obvious that Brazil is a country that is still, you know, it's still very based on structures that were created during slavery. Like it's still rich white upper classes and like the darker skin you have, the blacker you are, the poorer you tend to be, the less rights you have, the less access to like wealth, but also like education and so on that you're likely to have. And it's that was so obvious, which is not to say England doesn't have its horrific problems, which it does. And an important part of the book is when, when they're discussing the fact that in Brazil, middle class families have maids. And Anna Paula, the aunt, says, well, if you could afford one in the UK, you'd have a maid. It's not that people in the UK are necessarily morally any better, it's that we have better workers' rights. So it's that's an important point. So, I mean, I've drifted from your original question, but I, yeah, it was very important to me to write about the anger that upper-class Brazilians felt. Um, they were, so this is before the, the coup, but when Dilma was impeached, but they were still very angry about, yeah, their maids getting workers' rights. So they're very angry about the fact that, like, you can't just have a maid who lives with you and you pay by month. Like, you have to pay someone per hour for their labour, obviously. They'd be very angry that there's, like, race and class quotas at universities that seemed outrageous. You know, I've paid all this money for my kid to go to private school and now someone <laughs> now, now it's harder for them to get into university. That seems so unfair. So I wanted to... And the irony for me was always that the rationale that these people use is, um, oh, Brazil is such a shithole, like, it's not developed, like, the Europe or the US. And and I totally get, like, yes, I'm very privileged to live somewhere where I have, like, a great tube system and I'm not scared to walk home alone at night. But, like, I'm from Europe and I call your bluff. Like, it's not that Europe's really civilised. And also in Europe we have things like better workers' rights. So, and that's not the kind of thing that you want. So I guess I wanted to kind of document that outrage and be like hey this actually doesn't square with the fact that like you've had a dictatorship democracy is really important in your country like it's really fragile it's really young and again like what we're talking about like it's the country that's actually built on the genocide of indigenous people on like like enslaved like forced migration of like people from west africa so there was such a huge disconnect between how i understood oppression to work in brazil and how i understood brazilian culture to have been built and the way it's understood by like certain white upper class Brazilians, and I wanted to kind of somehow wrap that up in this story. Related to that, there's a, there's a, a sequence in the book where one of the characters says that the Portuguese were sort of inefficient, and if it had been the English that had colonised Brazil, yeah, Brazil would have been this, you know, much more, you yeah. know, advanced and well-run society. Well, it's really funny funny in like a dark way but like I've heard people say that several times and you can understand why as a Brazilian now you'd be like well I wish I spoke English but it's funny because they always say oh then we'd be like Australia or the US and you say oh what about India and they're like oh no right like it's obviously also just a white supremacist thing and I mean just to bring it right up to the present obviously Bolsonaro now in charge yeah those narratives that you're talking about I guess take even more centre stage don't they because as a mm. populist leader those sort of things become part of the package yeah completely he's yeah he's a white supremacist he's a fascist like he really he hates women gay people trans people like all lgbtq people so 
they're really important. And again, it goes back to like, why is Brazil such a violent country? Like, when was this? Where did it come from? It came from like genocide, slavery, the military dictatorship, like the military police who kill so many black people in Brazil. They were trained during the dictatorship. So these, it's not like a, oh, oppression exists everywhere. No, this is like actually how it happened. And it's really important to record that. And certainly this book was written from a place of safety. Like I didn't think, I didn't ever think this would happen. But now that it has happened, uh, yeah, I think it's even more important to say, look at the Brazilians who are voting for him and say, look, they exist. This is how they're operating. This is all the things that they've decided that they are okay with and they actually want. So, yeah. I'll get you to read a bit of the book in a moment. Before we finish off, you've already mentioned at least one, but tell us some more writers that were that are an influence on you as a writer and perhaps some people now that we should be looking out for. Um, so the book I read and I was like, oh, that's the only novel I've ever read. I've never, nothing ever was written before or after is Beloved by Toni Morrison um, because of the way that it uses form to talk about trauma. And again, part of the thing, things I think I've been talking about, like I think Brazil made more sense to me after I had read Beloved and thinking of her as an American writer in the continental sense. So I think, yeah, that's been really important. Similarly, um, The Colour Purple by Alice Walker, again, because of the way it deals with sexual violence and trauma and joy. Um, and I think that's really important to me in the way I write is writing books for people that aren't about convincing people or showing traumatic graphic stuff. It's really about assuming that you believe the protagonist, assuming you believe a person and, like, what is the kind of thing that someone that might have experienced that want to read and, like, what kind of joy and healing can a text bring or embody or show or give. So, and Sandra Cisneros also does that in The House of Mango Street. Um, so those are the books, yeah, that have been important. And then something to look out for, uh, there's a book called The Sun on My Head, which is by a Brazilian author called Giovanni Martins, Martins. And it's been like a sensation in Brazil and it's been published here by Faber and the translation I think is good. And yeah, you should look out for that. Superb. So can I get you to, um, to read us a bit? I'm going to read a chapter from like, I don't know, maybe like 80% of the way through. So this is told from the mum's point of view and it's sort of a standalone. We were medical students living in the city we had a lovely little apartment, me and Iggy and this guy called Alfredo. I must have been, what, 19 or 20? Duda had the most chaotic flat down the road in Villa Madalena, near the bridge that was this dusty pink colour. Her flatmates were proper punks, like, they used to steal my tapes from my car and when I asked for them back they said no because I was studying to be a doctor and would have more income than them. Redistribute, they said. Anyway. Iggy is Iggy. You know Iggy, he lives in Salvador now. He works in psychiatry at the university, lives with his partner, Mauricio. But Alfredo, you don't know Alfredo. I lost touch with him 20 years ago. In fact, I don't know what happened to Alfredo. But Alfredo had just come to live with us. He came from a town from the interior called Tatui, where he had trained to be a priest. Yes, he had trained to be a priest, went to pre-seminary school, had the robes. He showed us pictures of him wearing the big Catholic robes. A teenager, really, wearing the big purple priest robes. But he left. I can't remember why, but anyway, but he left. Maybe he just didn't like it, or maybe he fell in love with someone. But he left. He left and came to São Paulo, which was where he met us. 
So Alfredo was new to the city. I can't even remember what he was doing. It was the early 80s. Everything was chaos. You know, the dictadura. We were all students, so, you know, we were fighting, fighting, fighting. Fist in the air. Clean water. Free press. Democracy. Blah, blah. Me and Iggy and Alfredo wanted to do graffiti. Yes, paint messages all over the public walls. In secret, at night, of course, because that was the only time you could really do it. Those were difficult times. So we bought the paint... And we had our black night clothes and things. I used to be very fit, you know, just like you, rode a bicycle, whatever. And we were all ready to go with our black paint and clothes in the middle of the night when little Alfredo said he didn't want to come anymore. He was too scared. Poor Alfredo. He was new in the big city and they were very scary times. Very scary times if you were caught. Anyway. So we left the flat. Me and Iggy, we said, that's okay, Alfredo, bye-bye, Alfredo. We went out into the night. We had decided before that we would paint political slogans and then poetry also, because we had read a lot of poetry as well as Marx and Engels and Lenin. Sometimes things are both, of course. There was a huge wall under a bridge near where we lived. It was a sort of late-night dusty pink colour. So we painted on it in huge black letters. Coraging, Alfredo. And it became like, what do you call it now? A meme. Lots of people saw it. Everybody saw it. It stayed there for ages. Huge, big black letters across the wall under the bridge. Everybody in the city saw it. And people would say to each other, would whisper, and they would say, Coraging. Coraging, Alfredo. So I've been talking to Yara Rodriguez-Fowler about her novel Stubborn Archivist, which is out now in the UK from Fleet Books. Yara, thank you so much for coming in and talking Thanks about it. Thanks for having it. me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.